Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Per, how's it going? It's going great. Good to be here. How does it feel to be in the belly of the beast? It feels a little weird. Yeah. yeah I, I saw a lot of police officers on my way here. Yeah. Uh, more than usual. So you could really see that they're protecting the government. Can you feel like it, it's it's almost like uh, Mordor is, is pulling at your soul a little bit and you better get out? Before. A little bit. I didn't see an eye in the sky, but yeah. other than that, it was pretty much, yeah. Well, we, we covered up. Um, <laughs> okay. But uh, we, were, uh, we were hanging out, of all places, in Tbilisi, Georgia. We were both speaking at Liberty International, and I guess that was a couple months ago. And, and you said that you had a new book coming out. Um, and I'm like, oh, great, another book. But then you told me your purpose was to simplify and explain economics in as succinct and, and fun way as possible. I'm like, You're, that's music to my ears, because that's sort of my mission in life is to take uh, Austrian economics specifically, but economic concepts and principles and get people who maybe don't think about the world through an economic lens to, to start to understand that stuff and to appreciate what, what these tools can, can do for them to understand how the world works, but also just how to, how to live their life, I think, in a, in a way that you, you understand a little bit more about what's going on. So you, um, but, but before we get into the book, I want to um, give you a chance to tell everybody what your background is. I, I take it that you, would you self-identify as an Austrian economist? Yeah, I would. Yeah. But I'm a Swedish Austrian economist who's yeah. also an American. So it's very confusing. Very, yeah. Of course, and, and when I tell non-economists or even just most people that don't know what an Austrian economist is, they think that I mean that I'm from Austria. And that's not what you mean. No, that happens a lot. Yeah. I mean, this is just one of many traditions in economics, and it started at the University of Vienna. That's why it's called Austrian economics. And it's really, it's really a term that was invented by the enemies of Austrian economics, because Austrians were very theoretical from the beginning, starting with a lot of theory and not a whole lot of empirics. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you had the German historical school, which was only empirics. They didn't even believe in theory. And of course, Germany being bigger and fancier than, than Austria, they refer to, well, those guys at, in Vienna, as they, they were uh, inferior, right? So they, they said, it, well, you know, the Austrian school. So it's supposed to be sort of derogatory. And somehow the name stuck and, well, now we have that name. There was also like, and this, this is something that, that I used to think a lot about, that there was a methodological difference where um, the German historical school, but economics, neoclassical economics generally, was pretending to be like the other sciences. It was pretending to be um, just a form of, of natural sciences that you could reduce down into um, an equation. And, and Mises and the Austrians, starting with Karl Menger, just rejected all of that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's sort of, a, we, we usually refer to it as physics envy. Yeah. I mean, trying to be just like physics. I mean, you can read it, uh, Foundation Trilogy by Isaac Asimov, where they sort of can predict exactly what's going to happen in the universe and who's going to do what, because they have all this knowledge, just like in physics, where you can predict exactly. Of course, then people don't really have any free will. We don't make any evaluations ourselves. There's no subjectivity involved, so it doesn't make any sense. But if you want to be scientific, then you need to come up with predictions. 
So Austrians don't really do that at all. Instead, yeah. we try to understand what the heck is going on, and we recognize that there are people, and with all their faults and all their flaws, um, making all mistakes and all this kind of stuff. Uh, they have Im- imperfect knowledge, to say the least. Right? We're usually very ignorant, mm-hmm. uh, and then we act and interact with other people, and you have all kinds of economic phenomena rising out of that. And that's what we try to understand. Where did they come from? What do they mean? How do they affect the future? Those sort of things. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's real, dealing with real people in the real world we actually live in instead of some fantastical world where um, homo economicus is, is acting based on perfect information. Right, there, there are no models like that. There are no simplistic sort of models. Instead, I think if Menger, the founder, would have, have called the school anything, he would probably called it causal realist because mm-hmm. it's based on causalities. And, of course, any action is causal. We're trying to achieve something. So if we don't believe that we can achieve it, well, then, then we don't act. So, of course, there's causality at the very bottom of it. Um, and then, of course, it's realist because it's how we actually act, how we actually interact, real people in real situations. And so, so how did you find this stuff? Because it's, it's unusual, I think, to find Austrian economics if you're pursuing an economics degree. Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> There's definitely no Well, I, I went to Grove State <coughs> College, so it was, but it, it was weird because our chairman had studied under Mises, so that was different. Right, Grove City is sort of the only place where you will find Austrian economics. <laughs> All the other places, they don't even know what it is. Yeah. So un- unfortunately, I found it the same way as most other people find it, that it's through politics. So by being a libertarian, you get exposed to this sort of fringe school, or at least marginalized school. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I mean, most, most libertarians are Chicago school economists, so very different. But there, there is a, a minority that are Austrian school and I got exposed to those ideas, and they fit very well with how I reason about things. So, and 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 then I got a chance to study that a little more in detail. And I mean, the, I, I recognized my own reasoning basically in that. Of course, the the sort of masters in Austrian school were much smarter and much more well read than I ever was. But but still, it fit very well with my own views. So, were you um, were you training as an economist before you discovered these ideas, or vice versa? Uh, a little bit of both. I mean, I, I identified with it. I had probably read some of it before I started studying economics, at least in grad school. But I wasn't really aware of it being a school or a, a tradition. But then um, I actually went to grad school through the Mises Institute because I, I, I got in touch with my advisor, Peter Klein, through the Institute. And that's how I ended up at, at Missouri. Uh, and and therefore, I also got in, in in touch with all this literature and all the seminars and so forth at the Mises Institute. I, I already had a relationship with the institute, but I, since I was in Sweden, you don't really go to a seminar in Alabama. Yeah, it costs a lot, and it's really hard to do it and all this st- these things. But if you're a grad student in Missouri, going to Alabama is not a big deal, and then you get to meet a lot of interesting people and. You get a chance to read all these classics, and you realize, whoa, this is very different from what they're actually teaching us in the courses. So it's, I mean, very often I think we we say that, well, as an Austrian, when you go to grad school, well, you're taught one thing, but you need to self-educate on the side. So you need to get two educations at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So you went to the University of Missouri for your PhD? Yeah. And you, where do you teach now, and where have you taught? I'm at Oklahoma State now, 
in entrepreneurship though, so I'm not in an economics department. And before I was at Oklahoma State, but I was at Baylor. So really my, my degree is in applied economics or in, in the Department of Agricultural Economics even, because okay. that's where Peter Klein was at. So I got that degree. I moved across campus to the business school and taught entrepreneurship um, as an adjunct, which it, that's not anything I would wish for anyone because <laughs> you don't get really, you yeah. don't get paid and you get to work a lot. Yeah. Uh, but it was a way to get into the business school world. And while I was doing this, they opened a position or two really at Baylor. They wanted someone who could do policy and entrepreneurship. And it turns out that if you do entrepreneurship, you don't really know anything about policy. If you know anything about policy, you probably do economics or political science, but then you don't know anything about entrepreneurship. And there I was, and I was doing both. So I was sort of a perfect fit. So they hired me. So I, I went to Waco for a couple of years, and then they opened the position at Oklahoma State, and I just moved north and tenure track and all this stuff that counts in academia. So in the university system, what's the difference between economics and entrepreneurship? Oh, a lot. So very often they're usually they're not in the same colleges mm -hmm. so economics is usually in the arts and sciences and entrepreneurship of course is part of the business school very often entrepreneurship is much more uh, practical and applied because it's about doing business plans and helping students get uh, started on their new on their own ventures and things like that whereas economics is a whole lot of high theory and math and so forth or maybe it's data mining in a huge database but and it's very theoretical, very abstract. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, it, it seems that um, the practicality, in my mind, the practicality of, I'm, I'm, I'm not a professional economist, but I, I studied Austrian economics, and I, I find it very useful in the real world to try to understand, like, for instance, the craziness of the last three years I was able to take some basic Austrian concepts and apply them very early on um, and and have some sense for not only what was happening, but what would happen if certain things like lockdowns or spending trillions of dollars we didn't have um, through um, expansion of the money supply. Like These would be quite easy, predictable things. You don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but you, you know something because of, of Austrian economics. Right. Yeah, no, I have the same experience. And very often I, I usually say that entrepreneurs are Austrians. They just don't know it Yeah. because they have been exposed to how the market works. And, and they understand that, well, the, the customer is king. Yeah. You can't do anything unless you communicate to the customer why it's valuable to them. Right. So they already understand subjective value, which is at, at the core, of course. They understand that they really serve consumers, not the other way around. Uh, they understand market forces, they understand competition, they understand all of these things, right, that are, are core to Austrian economics. They understand that the market and economy is a process. It's not uh, what I call the gang sign of economics, right, supply and demand. It's not a static system. So it's always changing. And as an entrepreneur, it's pretty obvious because you are the change too. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so you're in, in this changing dynamic uh, setting and you cause change to it. So they, they know a lot of the stuff that we know in Austrian economics. They don't have the terminology. They don't have the framework. They just have sort of the tacit knowledge of it. So very often speaking to entrepreneurs, they understand exactly what I'm saying. And, and, and usually I get the reaction that exactly. I just didn't have the words. Yeah. I mean, I, I know exactly what you mean. And that, that's exactly right. That's my experience. So, so, I mean, it's not a lie to say that 
Austrian economics really is realist economics because we have that understanding that practitioners have too, but they just lack sort of the formal framework. So I'm jumping way ahead in the book, and I haven't even introduced the book yet, but I want to I talk about entrepreneurship because I'm, this is one of the fascinating arguments within the Austrian family is the nature of entrepreneurship. And I'll, I'll butcher it a little bit, but I feel like it's basically Kersner, Israel Kersner versus Mises, whereas Kersner has this idea that entrepreneurship is discovery, that you're, you're discovering hitherto unknown opportunities to serve consumers, and that, you know those opportunities were there and you find them. Whereas Mises, and I sort of compare this to you know Steve Jobs would be this guy that Mises is describing, he talks about it as, as you know, um, perception about the future. And there's this great passage in human action that I quote all the time, sort of quote, because I haven't memorized it. But he's like, you know, the entrepreneur charges forward and, and the rest of the public is laughing at him. They think he's crazy, but he can see around the corner of history and imagine a different, better world and, and create opportunity. So it's not, it's not necessarily that it was there. It was created by entrepreneurship. Where, where are you on that spectrum? I'm, I'm totally a Misesian on that spectrum. Because, I, I mean, the way I usually put it is that entrepreneurs are in the business of creating our future. And it's a future that they imagine, and they also have to imagine that it's of value to someone, or at least or enough people to make a profit out of it, right? And it's not really about exploiting opportunities that are already out there, the sort of hovering somewhere, and you just need to see them. Um, it's not totally fair to Kirsner to say that that's his theory. I mean, there's more to it. But at the same time, he has written about how it's error correction. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so we're not perfect yet but by by finding these errors made by previous entrepreneurs and previous consumers we can push the economy a little closer to equilibrium and i mean that's what he was trying to explain too how how the economy gets close to equilibrium and closer and closer yeah and to mises it's really uncertainty bearing mm-hmm. and uncertainty is he's very specific on what uncertainty means it's uncertainty about the future market conditions so it's really about the supply and the demand in the future you don't know what other entrepreneurs are going to offer. You don't know what kind of products are going to be available at what prices and things like that. That's the supply side, right? You don't know what consumers are going to want and how they're going to rank different options either. And in that future, you want to position whatever it is you're producing the best way possible so that you can get as much as possible out of it. Yeah, that's that's the secret sauce right there. But let, let's go back to the book because I, the, the next question I want to ask you is the beginning of your book, but this book was uh, recently published by the Mises Institute. And I don't know the answer to this. Have you, what, what else have you written before this book? Well, a lot of journal articles that are probably too boring to talk about. So academic Um, journals, typical economist stuff. Uh, And also two other books before this. Yeah. Um, But I mean, I, I started really writing a lot of columns that are on policy on economics, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a previous life, I was a systems developer and business consultant. And while doing that, I spent a lot of time reading and, and writing. So I published in all kinds of online, well, newspapers or journals and whatever else, right? Yeah. like Mises.org, LewRockwell.com, things like that. A lot of those. Um, so that's where I started sort of refining my writing In terms of books, I mean, this is my third book, and I've edited a few books as well. 
Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org. Well, I'm curious because I, um, my own, the three books I've written, each one, um, I'm, I'm simplifying, but the, the goal is to write a shorter, more concise, simpler, easier to understand book every time that I write something. And I, you know, I started off writing academic stuff too, and it's almost comical to read it now because it's, it's all footnotes and subtitles. And, and I mean, I love to quote dead economists, but, um, it, I realized at some point that, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to such a small audience. If I could translate this into something that would be accessible, I would reach a much broader audience. So that, that describes everything I've tried to do in my career. And that's, um, I have to say, you have accomplished um, something important because when I talk about Austrian economics, young people will say, I'm really interested in that. What should I read first? And I'm not going to throw human action at them. And I I'm hope not. not. Yeah. I'm not going to throw um, Bombawork's uh, Capital. What is it? Three books in, on mm -hmm. capital formation. Um, and Hayek is pretty dense to slog through. I usually recommend The Road to Serfdom, but but what you've done is you've. I, I would view this as sort of a um, cheat sheet for human action, which maybe sure. I don't yeah. know if that's fair or not. But uh, describing these these basic concepts of economics in a way that I think, I think non-economists will, will have a, a good time reading this. So congratulations. I think it's a great work. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And so published by the Mises Institute. And, the, and let, let's go through some of these concepts. And first, like, you know, what, what is, you, you start with the question, basically, what is, what is the economy? Yeah. Because that's one of those things that, I mean, in a sense, I mean, to, Go back a couple of steps. Most of the concepts in economics are concepts that we use in everyday language. Yeah. So we talk about the, the economy and markets and prices and maybe even supply and demand, but most people don't even don't really know what those mean. And very often when, when I get pushed back on, on these ideas, it's because they have a very different and to me very strange definition of those terms and usually very vague in definition as well. So yeah. <laughs> I mean it makes them safe because they have a, a tacit understanding of it sort of and doesn't matter how you push back on them, they can always pick a different version of the definition, right? But as a scholar, you can't really do that. And as a framework, you also cannot do that because you need to be very specific. Yeah. And the economy itself, I mean, yeah, ask anyone what it is. And they go, well, it's like all of us, it has some something to do with money and businesses and things like that. But that's super vague. Yeah. So, so what is it exactly? And I mean, it's, it's, it's really about economizing production trying to get as much value as possible out of the limited resources we have. So you start off with um, not only one of my favorite economists, but one of my favorite quotes from Frederick Bastiat, and I think it's economic sophisms, where he tells the story, um, and he's such a great storyteller, by the way, and I, I think the best economists tell good stories um, because people can relate to them, but he's, he's talking about the Paris that he lives in at the time, and how it is that, that people sort of um, naively and, and happily go to bed at night knowing that everything they need, particularly food, will be there when they wake up. And they have no idea how that happens um, 
but he's he's trying to explain it, the division of labor and the insanely complex series of of decisions and 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 production allocations that happen to make that sort of I hate to use the word magic because it's not magic, but it's um, it's incredibly complex and and reliable. Yeah, yeah, it is, and in in a sense, I mean, that's why economics is so fascinating because we all take it for granted, and we don't think of it as something fantastic. Like like you said, it it sort of is magic, but we just go to the store and buy whatever we want. And we go, oh, look at that, another generation of the iPhone or whatever it is. Like, oh, even better. It's just there. Of course it's there. It's there every year. Well, how the heck did it happen? How come we have smartphones at all or cell phones? Right? All of this is created by someone who's imagining that people will be better off by using it. So, and of course, they have to figure out how to, how to get all the resources together and steal the resources from some other type of production that someone else thinks is an even better idea. Mm-hmm. So... And all of this comes together somehow in, it, it looks like it's planned. It looks like it's, it's super coordinated from above because it, it works beautifully. And a lot of people have jobs and they go to the job every day and they get paid and then they buy all this beautiful stuff. And there's just more and more of it. And, and our well-being and standard of living just increases every year. And we just, well, I mean, that's just normal. No, it's not normal. It yeah. was created. Yeah. It's fantastic, right? And like the, the Bastia question, Paris, how does it get fed? Where does the food come from? Well, it's not because everybody in Paris is a, is a farmer, because no one in Paris is a farmer. And they weren't back then either. At this, they, they still get food every day, every day. In the markets, there's a lot of food to buy at affordable prices, all kinds of variety, not less than people would, would want. There's usually a lot to choose from, and the people are happy with buying it. How does it happen? I mean, that, that's, the, that's the real core question that most people just don't think about. And I don't blame them for it, too, because, of course, they don't think about it. I mean, they have other things to think about than yeah. getting to work and getting the kids to take to care and whatever else, right? There are plenty of things in our everyday lives that, we, that are, are higher priority. But still, this is the, the marvel of the market, as I called it, right? It's, it just creates all these beautiful things and this beautiful wealth and prosperity that everybody takes for granted. Figuring out how to explain it, because um, uh, I, I, I went to this this particular Bastiat quote in March of 2020 when there was first talk of, of locking down not just the United States, but basically the global economy. And there was already talk about essential and non-essential workers. And, and um, most people went along with it because they were afraid but as someone that appreciated this, this, this beautiful complexity that makes it so we don't have to worry about whether or not food shows up tomorrow, um, maybe we need to understand it a little more because the idea that you could just pick and choose which workers mattered. And, you know, for the laptop class, the work, only workers that mattered were the Uber drivers that were bringing them food to their front door, not appreciating the mm-hmm. millions of other people that were um, globally involved in in producing and transporting and processing and and all that stuff. Um, I, I mean, I can imagine general categories, but you and I couldn't even conceive of of how that food got there. Um, so maybe it's an Achilles' heel that it works so well. In a sense, it is. I mean, I think that's why also that we have such economic illiteracy that we don't have to think about it because it's just automatic. It just happens all around us. 
and even worse i mean today we're so wealthy that we don't we're not really exposed to the market itself i think it used to be the case that people when when they're farmers and so forth i mean they they have to take the uncertainty of will there be a big or a small harvest things like that what will the price be will everybody have have a lot of corn to sell when i sell my corn a year from now i mean well if they do then the price is going to be really low and that's whoops that's my ass right so i i will have to figure that out and i figure to figure out maybe there's another market where there's not enough corn so i can go there instead so we're, we were in a sense more exposed to the market forces and understood better that well your job is to serve someone yeah and that's how you get the purchasing power back in payment in profits or wages and therefore you can buy what someone else buy uh, produces but we don't really get that now because we're well, I mean, we're in a cubicle in a huge corporation, or even worse, we work in a bureaucracy for the government where you get paid for not doing anything. And yeah. the, the less you accomplish, the, the more you get paid, pretty much. Right? And so there's no connection at all between serving mankind, really, and what you get paid. And if, if that link is sort of broken, I mean, th- then there's no understanding whatsoever. And it, it sort of goes back to the point before that entrepreneurs... They understand Austrian economics, but they don't have the terms. Well, they're exposed to all these market forces all the time. Yeah. They're exposed to customers making demands. They're exposed to people working for them. Oh, they have to increase the, the output. So should I hire another person or not? Well, what person should I hire? What should I pay them? All of these decisions. So they're always exposed to all these, these uh, uncertainties and all these market forces. So they understand what is going on for most of us. Now we go to college and then we get a job and then we climb the corporate ladder and then we get a gold watch. Well, not anymore, but at least you retire and that's it. Yeah. It, it probably, if you took those two categories of, of, of sort of bu- small B bureaucrats versus entrepreneurs and then tried to overlay that with um, people that supported lockdowns and sheltering in place versus people that had to work. If they didn't work, they didn't eat. And I suspect it's probably the same. Yeah. Or I, similar, similar, yeah. not the same, obviously. I would expect that, too. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there were very few small business owners who thought, oh, great, finally I can just press pause on my business for a while. Right. Of course not. They understand that that's not possible. Yeah. It's going to be the end of not only the business, but also their source of income and their family is going to suffer. So pressing y- pause, y- what does that even mean? Yeah, you can find those businesses because they now have plywood over their over their windows here in the District of Columbia. Right. Yeah. So, so congratulations. So, um, you know the the process that you're talking about, um, and the, and the and the core concept is human action. That that people are pers- purposeful, and the the way I describe the market, I, I don't call it the economy, and maybe the market and the economy are not the same thing in your conception, but. I, I, I say, you know, the market is just a process for people trying to figure stuff out in a super uncertain world. And if, if you don't let that process work itself out, you don't come up with solutions. But it's based on the idea that, that people act with purpose. So not, that was Mises' concept, but perhaps not original to him. I mean, I think that's, that's our understanding of action in general. I mean, we we act in order to attain something that we think is good or of value or whatever you want to call it. But there's a reason to it. It's, it's not just pure instinct. So we, we choose between different alternatives and, and we choose because we want to attain something that that is 
valuable to us in, in whatever personal way. Is it, um, I mean, I realize this term is loaded, <coughs> but is, is it rational in the sense that, so one of the, one of, one of the critiques of, of the market is that we assume that people know enough to act rationally. Parse rational. Yeah, that's a that's a good one because people tend to think of rational as if if you're not God, you can't be rational, mm-hmm. right? So one example would be that if, if I'm about to be hit by a car, I immediately jump to the side to get out of the car's way, and it happens to be there happens to be a bus in that lane, so I get run over by a bus. Was that an irrational decision to jump out of the way of the car? Well, I didn't see the bus, right? But had I been God, I would probably have taken the time to mo- to jump the other way because then maybe the car would have run over my foot, and, but not all of me. So that would have been better than being run over by the bus. Well, we're not gods. So so that's, that's just ridiculous thinking of rationality in that sense. So instead, based off of what information you have and do your understanding of it, are you rational? And then, of course, defining action as purposeful based off of what you value personally you can't be anything but rational, which is, I realize that's a very provocative statement. Yeah, yeah. But given everything you know, you will always try to attain the highest value to you. Yeah. And, and there's no other way. I mean, even if you would uh, very formalize, sit, sit and, and write down a list on this is how I rank these options right now. And then, okay, so this is the highest one. I don't think I'm going to be able to get that. There's something wrong with it for some reason. I'm going to pick the second highest value. I mean, you pick it for a reason. Yeah. So you have already, just because you picked the second highest, already ranked it higher than the highest. Yeah. So, so it's, it's impossible to be irrational in that sense. You can, be, you can have very limited information, but given the information and the understanding you have, you're always rational. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibbe on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things Liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. And you're, you, you're always acting in a world where you don't have perfect information. And you're always acting in a world where the future is, is unknowable in a certain sense. And, and, I, and there's, a, there's a chapter in Mises where he, where he talks about sort of the, the, the push and pull of your expectations, you know, what, what happened yesterday, what institutional constraints are there on your behavior versus your sort of creative perception and subjective values about what you're trying to accomplish. And by the, in that sense, it's completely rational in the sense that you have perfect information that you're a robot just maximizing against constraints that I, n- I never even understood why anyone used that model because those aren't people. And, and, and I mean, in a sense, they're not acting either. <clears throat> I mean, the point of acting is to uh, try to attain something. Well, if you have perfect information about the present and the future, you can't really do anything else. There can't be any choice because 
you know what's going to happen anyway. Yeah. So you're not acting. I mean, there's th- it's not this world at all. So it's a it's a strange critique of economics that in some other world where there are only gods, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that how how can you critique real people using that model? It's, yeah. It's just impossible. Um, and and another core concept that that is essential to um, all modern economics, but um, specifically the the Austrian school, starting with Menger, was the subjective theory of value. Talk about talk about why isn't value just the total of labor and and natural resource inputs that go into a product? Well, I mean, in in a sense, they are related. <clears throat> after the fact. But I mean, in any situation, we try to attain something that, that we want, and therefore we place value on it. And we always choose for ourselves anyway, <clears throat> excuse me, um, whatever means that it's at least costly because we want to attain as much and as many ends as possible. So if it is really the means or the cost that makes something valuable, then we should be as wasteful as possible. And that doesn't make any sense. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to anyone individually in our lives, and in in these in society overall, waste as much resource as possible, whatever we do, in order to make it valuable. That doesn't make any sense either, because we want to get as much as possible out of it. And so, obviously, there's there's a link that you have to have costs in order to get the value, but that's different from saying that the value comes from the cost. And this is something that. Adam Smith knew that something was wrong. He's struggling with this um, dilemma about um, sort of imagining. I, I don't know if he was labor theory of value, but certainly Karl Marx was. And, and Karl Marx's entire um, theory of exploitation was that um, the, the price of something and the return on something should basically be the labor inputs. Why, why doesn't that work? Like, um, don't, don't you like labor? <laughs> I love labor. <clears throat> I mean, I, I love to use as little labor as possible yeah. <laughs> to get the value. But I mean, e- even Marxists realize that there are two kinds of value. And, and they say that well, val- real value, whatever, real philosophical value, whatever you want to call it, is the labor hours put into it. But of course, they realize that there's a problem here that, well, if I'm, I really suck at my work and I put a lot of hours into it, then whatever I produce should be of higher value than you who are really efficient and produce the same thing. Well, that doesn't make any sense. So they talk about how it's the average labor time necessary in the marketplace. Well, that's a very strange concept of value, right? But all he wanted to do really was prove that there is exploitation. So, yeah. so that was the point. But then he realized also that, oh, well, exploitation, we can explain that by simply having prices of the final goods being different from the labor put into producing them. Well, okay, well, the price tells us something about the actual user's valuation of the thing. So then then we have two conflicting theories of value at the very same time. That's a very strange theory. But it it works if the point of it is to explain exploitation and get get to that as sort of the conclusion of it all. I, I don't know if Marx held this view, but certainly modern critics of free markets um cling to this belief that the you know the problem with exchange is that by definition one person wins because the other person lost somebody somebody gained something because somebody lost something and because we understand the nature of value as subjective to the person making the trade we can actually 
imagine win-win scenarios. Yeah, and and in a sense, modern economics. I mean, they they pay lip service to subjective value, but they they share that view because they have indifference curves that they talk about, right? There, where you're indifferent between these options, and then you choose based on your income constraints and all this stuff, which is basically what Marx was talking about too. That well, if value is objective, if we can measure it, and that's where mainstream economics is too, in terms of prices. Well, then we can calculate the maximum. We can we can take your values and my values and put them in the same function and maximize and all this stuff. And then you get to those really strange um, conclusions, like in an exchange, a voluntary exchange, one wins and the other loses. Or, as in, in the case of indifference curves, we don't care. Well, why the heck would we exchange if we don't care about the result? Yeah. We, we value what we get exactly as much as what we're giving up. Okay, so why, why do we do it? Well, I mean, Smith would explain the saying that we have a propensity, but Menger critiques that in, in his magnum opus, saying that that doesn't make any sense because then we would continue to exchange even beyond uh, our own welfare. So we would hurt and, and harm ourselves, continue to exchange just because we have a propensity. Well, that doesn't make any sense at all. So... Menger argues that, well, we, we exchange because we want what the other person has more than what we have to give up to get it. And if that is the case, well, then this should be the case for you too. And then we have mutual gains from exchanging. Well, then we explain exactly why people would exchange. And it doesn't matter if we're right or wrong or whatever. But in any such situation, if we both expect to be better off, yeah, of course we would exchange. And of course, it would haggle and, and, and figure out the terms and whatnot else, as long as it's not too costly to do so, right? But if we both gain, well, of course, it would have a propensity to exchange because that propensity is just striving to attain value. So you're, uh, you're a strong advocate that the consumer is king and that entrepreneurs exist to serve consumers and the market is really the process of, of satisfying the needs of consumers and through that lens, you you explain competition because I think I think a lot of again critics of the market process view competition as a process by which um, fat cat corporations screw consumers and get rich. Right, and maybe they can. I mean, very often they when they do that, they hide behind regulations, so no one can compete. They with part them. they partner with the government. Right. Yes. And and that's why they can do it. And, and that's it, of course cronyism. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, no, it, the only way you can start a business and actually make a buck or two is to serve consumers. So, I mean, the way I usually put it is that value is higher than price, is higher than cost. And and the way we teach entrepreneurship is that we have to start basically going at it backwards simply because we think about it as, oh, I want to produce this good. Okay, so I calculate how much does it cost to produce this product. Okay, then I'll... I'll I'll hire the people, I, I rent the, the facility, I buy the inputs, sign contracts and all this stuff. Then I start producing, it takes a month or two, then I have the goods and then you enter the market and say, here I am, look at these goods. Well, that's a fantastic way of failing, but it's, it's nothing else really. What you should do is start by thinking, okay, who would benefit from this type of, type of product that I wanna produce? And then how can I tweak this product so that that type of person would get as much value as possible out of it. And if I can figure that out, I mean, it's not in terms of, of numbers or anything, but it's sort of get a feel for it. 
then you can figure out how much would they be willing to pay. And if, if they, their gain is so much higher than that price, then it's easy to sell. You don't have to market a whole lot because they will immediately see that that's a great deal, right? And then your job as an entrepreneur is to figure out how can I keep the cost of production below that price so I get a profit from it. So you start with the customer, the consumer, and then you work your way back. And that's how you can become a, uh, a successful business. And I mean, that's also what, what, that's starting a new business, but that's also what corporations must do when they're competing in the marketplace. Because production always takes time. So whatever they're thinking of and planning to produce right now is what they're going to offer in the market later. If it's one week from today or 10 years from today, like automobile manufacturers, for instance, it takes many years to get a new, uh, new model car out there. So <clears throat> then they have to think about that all the time. And of course, think about where will the, will the other automobile manufacturers be in 10 years? What types of automobiles will I have to compete with in 10 years in order to get uh, the customer's money? Right? And if you think about that all the time, you realize and, and think about business this way, you realize that they have to innovate always. That's what competition is about. Always thinking about what future can we produce? What future can I produce for the customer? And why is this future valuable? And um, we already mentioned this, and I, I, think, I think we should go there just to make it very clear that um, this caricature of markets where corporations get richer, like we, we just went through three years of where this actually happened where you know small businesses got totally screwed and and went out of business and and w some people want to characterize that as sort of this outside exogenous shock the pandemic but it wasn't that it was it was government policies that um, um, very much favored big guys like Amazon who happened to have armies of lobbyists and I, I couldn't imagine that had a, that anything to it's do a coincidence with, yeah. it's a coincidence um, the the bar down the street, the big board that we've been telling the story of, he doesn't have a lobbyist, um, and and he got shut down multiple times. Um, so that the the collusion of big business and big government is 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 a very different process than you're describing because it's it's political entrepreneurship. How do I use the power, the monopoly yeah. power of the state, yeah. to either prevent future competition or literally destroy my competitors? Yeah, for sure. And in a sense, big business is very much the same as government. <coughs> Excuse me. That it works the same way. Yeah. Because it, it has its army of producers in the sense that the processes are streamlined. Uh, you have a big bureaucracy, lots of overhead, and you have all all these investments typically sort of paid off to some extent anyway. And you have really high econo economies of scale because that's that's how you compete with price. You don't innovate all that much anymore. You don't create new types of products all that much. You create the same product, but you do it cheaper and cheaper so no one else can enter. And and that sort of planning is what government does too. So of course, the people at the very top, they talk to each other and they, I, I guess they, they sort of see kinship in each other, right? They, yeah. That they're doing the same thing because a, a CEO of a huge corporation with 150,000 employees, it's basically the same thing as a, a, a local politician running the, the municipality or whatever. Uh, or, or running public schools or something like that. I mean, you don't you don't really think about you have your your market share already and and all this stuff. A little marketing you need that because there are two other big corporations, whatever. But but you don't have to uh, break new ground, and that's what entrepreneurs do. And small entrepreneurs they they undermine these big giants all the time, except for when when they're protected by government. Of course. Yeah. 
At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today, just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty and look cool. Um, so let's, uh, th- there's still a lot I want to get through um, and we couldn't possibly talk about economics and certainly Austrian economics without talking about the, the origins and purposes of money and, and economic calculation. And then I want to get into more of these things that government does to screw up this beautiful process that we're describing. So like, you know, starting, you, you dedicate your book in part to Karl Menger and, and in my mind, at least he, um, followed by Hayek and Mises, Mises and Hayek, really developed what I think is, a, is an important and unique and robust theory, understanding of money and why, why it needs to be a market-based thing. What, what is that understanding? Well, I mean, it's really, it, that there are several things that are so important about what, what his sort of story or narrative for, for where money comes from and what it means, because <clears throat> it's more than just having coins in your pocket. Yeah. Because the point of a money is that, well, it's something that you don't actually use the money itself. It's not of value to you in use, but it's value to you because you know others will accept it in exchange. So the, you can't really go from not having money to having money because people don't understand it. And no one is going to say, oh, well, I'll just accept your worthless things for the stuff that I created because you tell me it's money, whatever that is. I mean, no one is going to do that. So, so you need a process where people sort of step-by-step step accept uh, means of payment that are not things that they actually want. So I mean, in his story, he starts with barter trade where you have to find someone who wants exactly what you have to offer and have they have what you want to get in exchange. And that means that it's really, really hard to find someone who has exactly, and you can also agree on the terms. So there's not a whole lot of opportunity for exchange in this society. So then, of course, you're going to end up in situations where you really want what this guy has over here, but he will not accept what you have. But then you talk to him a little bit, perhaps, and then you realize that, well, he he could accept what I have in exchange. So you exchange for what I have, but you don't want that, really. You might be allergic to it, and, and you might really hate it, but you use it as a means to be able to trade with him. And that just means that in this relationship between you two, what I I offer is, is more saleable good. I mean, it, it opens up a possibility for you to exchange with this guy. And of course, others will do the same thing. And the more people do this, the more they will realize that, oh, well, they will actually accept a little other things too, a few other things. So they will figure out, oh, this, this thing over here that I can get is even more saleable because that means I can trade with these two, not just one more. So I will exchange whatever I have that is of use and of value to me for this stuff that I don't actually want to use. But I think that I can trade with many others using that. So people will choose to have this sort of roundabout indirect exchange relationships. And eventually the, you, will, you will see a couple of goods perhaps emerge as what everybody will sell their productions for so that they can use them in exchange. So it's a good in itself. It was from the beginning and it could be anything I mean, history uh, has many examples, cattle and seashells and slaves and flat rocks and, and whatever else. I mean, all kinds of things have been money. Um, 
just because it emerged that way. Of course, in the West, gold and silver became money because people really appreciated that. And they were used to transport and, and make sure that they were actual gold and silver and things like that. Right? But it, when people start to learn that they can indirectly exchange and when they realize that, oh, if I sell everything, all my surplus for this one thing that I have no use for at all, but I can use it to exchange with a lot of people, well, then, then there is a money and you think of everything in terms of this one good that you don't use, but you can compare prices between different sellers. And you can figure out where you can get as much as possible for this other good. And, and of course, you can sell your things for this good to different people and you can figure out the, what is the value of what I'm actually contributing. So you suddenly you have this sort of, in a sense, a measuring rod of what is your uh, supply worth to other people and also what can I get from others using this one thing? And it's very, this is very different from, from a, a, the dollar or the pound or, or something like that because that's just the government saying that you should use this. Yeah. And, and that, by the way, is, um, you know, some people love to, to, to pick on Ron Paul because he was so obsessed with gold and the gold standard. But the whole basis of that was an understanding of, of where real money comes from and that when we stopped linking those fake paper dollars to some standard, a gold standard, um, it made it that much easier for the government to destroy the currency. Yeah, and governments have always wanted to do this too. Yeah, I mean, if 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 money is something that they don't control, well, they play according to the same rules as everybody else. So if you want to go to war, and as a king, you always want to go to war because right, you want to expand your territory. You have to pay your troops, and you have to pay for all whatever is needed for war. Uh, and then you have to get loans, and you have to pay those loans back. And as a king, you, that sucks. Yeah. So if you can figure out a way to sort of dilute Can't the, the start money. nearly as many wars if you have to pay your loans back. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and, and I mean, that's just poor kings, right? Yeah. <laughs> they, they want to wage more wars and bigger wars and become grander kings and th yeah. those sort of things. So if they could find out a way to make more money somehow and not make them in, in, in the common sense that they earn more money, but just produce mm -hmm. more monies, the currency, and then they could buy more. And they figured that out, of course, that they could just well, make the coins thinner and thinner. So when all the, all the money comes into the castle or people pay their taxes and whatever else, well, you just take them to the smelting plant and you just make new coins, but they're a little thinner, which means you get more coins. And then you just buy stuff for, for the, the new coins. It's less money in those coins, really. Yeah. But you c everybody needs to accept them because that's the law and whatnot. Uh, so you can buy a whole lot more. So you enrich yourself at everybody else's expense. And then, of course, someone realized that, well, why do we use a, a good at all? I can just tell people that they have to use a piece of paper or like it is now, ones and zeros on a hard drive. And I regulate it. And if you don't use it, then, well, you have to use it in my territory. Yeah. Right. And then I can wage glorious wars, endless wars. I wonder how much um, how much war we can do with a um, government controlled centralized digital currency. Maybe, oh, maybe a lot. Um, so, back to real money as a means of exchange. Um, this is in large part the basis of the sophisticated price system that we understand today. Um, why is the price system so important in the economic telling of the story? 
Well, because economics is about the allocation of resources and how we use all kinds of inputs and resources in producing outputs that people find valuable. So basically consumption goods, products and services. And, and prices tell us the relative uh, value in production of those things. So, of course, the, the real prices or the, the direct prices are consu consumption goods because consumers, they first they, they work or they, they produce things and they get paid for their productions, usually by an entrepreneur who, who still doesn't know exactly the value of what you're doing, but they estimate that oh, they can pay you this because they think the value is whatever. And, and, and if they are wrong, they lose. If they're right, they earn a profit. So you get paid for your, your uh, supply into the economy and... With this money, this purchasing power, then you buy different things. And every time you buy something or do not buy something, you really vote in the, in the marketplace. So if you buy something, well, that means demand for that thing is higher. If you don't buy something, the demand for that thing is lower. Uh, and, and consumers overall do this. So some entrepreneurs will make money, some will not. Um, and based off of that, uh, they can expand their businesses and, and serve more consumers or they have to sh close their doors because they couldn't cover their costs, right? And, but what is really important with the price system, I think, I mean, that, I think everybody agrees with that story, but what's really important is this, what happens before that uh, with the entrepreneurs. And that's the calculation thing that you mentioned already, the, the pricing of the means of production. That's, that's where the real magic happens, right? That entrepreneurs, they start by thinking, what is the value for consumers? How can I satisfy them? Is this really of high value? How can I maximize it? What is the price they're willing to pay? Well, based off of that, I make decisions to buy in inputs. So I will not hire people if I don't think I can afford it, which is an obvious thing to say. But afford it, what does that mean? Well, it means I think that I can get more, I can get enough value out of this so that I can pay these expenses. So I choose my costs based off of the expected revenue. And of course, choosing your costs means that you're competing with other entrepreneurs for those resources. So maybe you and I want to hire the same guy. Well, I think that I can produce something really valuable and you think that your thing is valuable but not as valuable. I can outbid you. I can offer him higher, higher pay. So he'll probably, <clears throat> unless you have something else to offer, work for me. Yeah. And that sets his wage. And the same thing for all resources. And in, in this sense the highest value contribution, that's where the resource will go, automatic. Right? It's, it's the invisible hand that Adam Smith talked about, how, how these resources just seem to shift automatically and go to where they do most good. But it, it's the price system that makes the magic happen. It's the, it's the miracle of the market that we were talking about earlier, and, and, and Frederick Hayek called it uh, a vast telecommunications system. Um, I called it once an unspoken dialogue because you have all these people that don't know each other from all over the world, um, never never talk to each other, never communicated, don't even know they exist, and yet somehow this coordination process happens and food shows up on your doorstep in Paris the next morning. Right. And that that that's sort of the the Austrian narrative about the market process, but it's also the basis of, uh, for instance, Ludwig von Mises, his critique of the original conception of socialism was, well, there's no money, which means there's no prices, which means that these really smart guys have no, you know, the people in charge. 
the benevolent dictators, although I guess socialism wasn't that benevolent even in Marx's conception. It was pretty violent, but either way, they couldn't, they couldn't allocate resources because they didn't have these tools that, because they've, they've hijacked the process of people figuring stuff out. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, we, we can see this too. I mean, Pete Betke wrote a, a fantastic book on the Soviet Union <coughs> where he showed that while well, this argument actually holds empirically, we can see this very clearly because the Soviet Union started out with, with just imp- implementing communism, full-on communism. Right away, Lenin was like, ooh, communism. So they abolished all property, all prices and everything. And it just took a couple of years and everything imploded. Yeah. And it's, I mean, after the fact, a lot of apologists call it war communism just because it wasn't real, right? There's no real Scotsman for these people. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but just, the thing they is- They just have to try harder. Yeah, exactly. And you need someone who who has a little, uh, who goes a little further, or maybe right? kill harder is is the more honest way to say that. Yeah, maybe there was someone standing in the way. So yeah, so just uh, executing them is probably a good idea. <laughs> That's going to make the economy flourish. Um, but in just a few years, without property and and without prices, the whole thing imploded. And what happened? Well, they retreated. The communists retreat, retreated and said, oh, "Okay, okay, this." This obviously not working. This is embarrassing. So they implemented a little bit of property and a little bit of prices for consumption goods. <coughs> they were still communists, so they were all means of production. We we need the government to control those. But a uh, small farm, uh, that's fine. And having prices for your own whatever you produce on your farm and things like that, that's fine. Well, that meant that the Soviet Union could last another seventy years. So just a few years, a couple of years, just to implode completely without prices and private property. And then just a little bit of price, a little bit of property, and then it lasted 70 years. Yeah. So so in practice, you end up with um, some form of, regardless of the official ideology that's on their banner, that's, it's some form of fascism that, that allows for some market mechanism so that the entire system doesn't collapse. Right. You, 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 need, you need some kind of prices and some kind of rational allocation of resources and rational in the sense that it actually serves consumers because mm-hmm. that's that's the whole point i mean some people claim well you don't need economic calculation for socialism well maybe not but if the point is to use resources to serve consumers you do yeah if you want to serve someone else fine but that's going to be very costly and of course the consumers they, they're going to think it sucks so you, you're, you're basically sacrificing everybody else for this one will. And that's what socialism is. Yeah. So final concept we have time for, but we can't possibly talk about economics without talking about the boom-bust cycle, which comes towards the end of the... You have a, you have a great... The last section is about um, government regulation and, and intervention, but this is a famous or infamous Austrian view on what causes the business cycle. Mm-hmm. And it might be like um, Gene Epstein <coughs> insists that like this is this is not a what we're going through today is not a classic boom bust cycle. He calls it the Great Suppression, and it is absolutely a different story in the sense that um, we've never tried to shut down the global economy before. Um, but but I feel like there's still some lessons to learn. So what is what is this? Um, and it, it sort of came out of. If I'm getting my history right, it came out of the Austrian critique of socialism. Um, this is a this is a more um, equally de- not equally destructive, but 
um, also destructive thing that government does to the uh, free market. Yeah, in, in a sense, the Austrian business cycle theory ties together all the other contributions of the Austrian school by simply saying, well, this is how the economy works, but what if you would create a whole lot of new money and 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 uh, offer that as new credit in the economy? Which, I mean, that's what banks do. Um, and, and especially the past uh, century or so, they've done this a lot. Well, I mean, it's going to have an effect, like we talked about the king doing this, that whoever gets those monies first, they're going to be able to buy goods with this new money at the prices that were sort of adjusted to the previous uh, money supply. So if you create another trillion dollars and I give it to you, whatever you buy, I mean, you can outbid anyone. So you're going to be rich. You're going to be able to get whatever you want. And others are not going to be able to, to bid as much. But whoever you buy from, they're going to get more income. And they're going to be able to do the same thing, outbid whoever, whatever they want to buy. And then it goes through the economy that way in sort of ripple effect, with what we call Cantillon effects. So, and, and whoever gets them last is going to be really poor. So whoever has an income that is not adjusted to the new money, but all the prices are rising around them, well, they're going to be really poor as a result. And usually that, that is people with fixed income. So it's, it's whoever is already poor, it's going to be even poorer. Yeah. So typically this is a, a, a reallocation of resources from the poor to the rich. It just happens to be the case very often when the government is involved <laughs> for some reason. Yeah. <coughs> and, and this causes a problem, of course, because this new money, everything that you demand in the economy and try to buy, that is n not really what you could afford before. And because this pushes the interest rate down too, when you offer all this new credit, the banks do, the interest rate that they demand for, for their loans is going to go down. Because of course they're competing with trying to get as much loans as possible out there because the interest payments, is, that's a revenue, that's a profit. So the interest rate is going to go down, which means a lot of entrepreneurs are going to find that, well, if I can borrow money that cheap, then my project is probably profitable now. It wasn't before, but with this lower interest rate, I'll just start a business. So you have a lot more entrepreneurs starting businesses that are not as profitable as they, as the other ones, and they're less profitable than well, th they wouldn't be profitable without this without this new money. So you have a you have a boom created because of course they're they're going to take these loans and they're going to bid for all these resources, hire people, you know, <coughs> sign contracts with suppliers, buy inputs, and all this stuff. And that, of course, means that whoever is up the chain in the supply chain, they're going to go, whoa, look at this demand. We're going to hire more people. We're going to expand output and make investments and so forth. So they're going to get loans and do the same thing and hire up. So the higher up in the supply chain you get, the more investments there are going to be because everybody's asking for your product suddenly. There's a boom going on. <coughs> at the same time, people have not stopped consuming because usually when, I mean, this is really the normal um process of economic growth that when people refrain from consumption they put more money in the bank <coughs> and that money is then lent by banks to entrepreneurs so when people do not consume in the present and they save the money instead the interest rates go down more entrepreneurs create things well because consumers have savings so they can buy more stuff in the future too so there's no contradiction here well the problem with the, with the business cycle theory is that well, you have this boom, but consumers have not stopped consuming. Instead, what is happening is that these consumers, they have jobs too, and they get probably higher paying jobs because of this boom, 
So they can consume even more right now. <clears throat> so at the same time, you have more investments in production and more consumption at, at the very same time, which it sounds great, right? It sounds like there's more growth, but you're actually using more capital than actually exists and capital in, in the fiscal sense, right? The, the resources are tied up in, 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 in production high up in the supply chains and in products being consumed at the same time. So when you keep producing these things, that eventually you're going to end up with, oops, no more resources. You're gonna be, they're going to be gone because they've been consumed or invested already, but you don't have enough to complete the, the production processes. And that's when, that's when the bust comes. So the boom is unsustainable, leads to a bust, and the bust is really a correction with entrepreneurs saying, whoops, I can't do anything. I don't have anyone to buy what I'm selling. I've overinvested. I'm going to close my doors. I, I go bankrupt because this is unsustainable. And then, of course, they're going to drag others with them as well, all their, all their customers and, and suppliers and so forth because they can't pay their bills. <coughs> which means, of course, an opportunity for other entrepreneurs to figure out what do consumers actually want. Yeah, and and that's the so the the bust for Austrians is really a correction of the errors already made. An acknowledgement of the the corruption of price signals and and all that. Like so, there's elements of this story that I think very much apply to what's going on today. It's 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 a slightly different story in the sense that that we suppressed production while we were um, expand, radically expanding the money supply. Um, and, and, and by the way, those injection points, as you point out, um, basically go through fat cats. And so they're there to exploit all of this new money. Um, people that are holding um, money in their wallets or their savings accounts, and maybe they've been, been deemed non-essential workers, like they're mm -hmm. getting doubly screwed in this process. Um, but as, as Misi says in Human Action, the, the problem is that the bust is the healing. It's very painful, mm -hmm. um, but you have, to, you have to allow the economy and entrepreneurs to figure out what, what prices are real and what investment opportunities are real. Uh, the government never allows that. And so we, we bail out failed corporations and we keep injecting more and more money into the system, which... which probably is precisely what's led to the very high inflation we're looking at right now. Well, it's definitely part of it. So, I mean, we've been doing this for a long time with I mean, the dot-com bubble, mm -hmm. and the housing bubble, and so forth. And every time, instead of letting the correction actually happen, <coughs> we, we, well, <laughs> I mean, the... the they, yeah. The, yeah, the, the decision... Those, those the, guys. The decision makers, they yeah. just made sure to print a lot more money to sort of cover everything up and create a new boom, a new bubble on top of the old one. Yeah. And I mean, the, some economists even said at the, uh, when the dot-com bubble burst that we should create a new bubble on top of this, maybe in, in uh, housing. I mean, that's, that's what they created too. I of mean, that's, course, yeah. that's where it went. Yeah. Um, and of course, the, the new bubble has to be bigger than the previous one to cover it up. So it has to be bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's gonna be more and more painful to get a correction going and actually get back to normal, get a, a production apparatus that is actually aligned with what consumers want. Yeah. And that's, that's where the economy should be, but it's, it's, it's continuously and increasingly distorted by all these interventions. So you, um, um, you wrote this book, uh, obviously, because you wanted to reach a more popular audience, and, and you write a lot of articles, and, and you're, you're on Twitter. 
Um, what are you are you optimistic that that you can turn people on to some basic understanding of economics? Yeah, I am. I mean, I think <clears throat> in in the sense that people want to know, uh, and I I don't know how many people have I've carry the book with me a little here and there and, and hand it out to people. And, and people say, oh, I wish I could understand the economy. I mean, because right now everybody realizes that it's so chaotic and weird and no one really gets what it, the heck is going on. So, so they want to understand. <clears throat> so maybe a short book like this is, is a way to actually get them to read something. Yeah. Uh, so, and maybe even understand parts of it. I, I mean, I remember, f- you know, for years, um, even going back to the Tea Party, um, Glenn Beck would talk about Frederick Hayek um, or Ayn Rand or, you know, I would talk, I would even talk about Adam Smith and the theory of moral sentiments and all sorts of stuff. And and just folks that were either activists or people that would, you know, watch Ron Paul give a speech or something like that, they would always tell me, I have this stack of books on the side of my bed um, and I'm so frustrated because uh, my kids got a ball game and I got two jobs and and um, my wife wants me to come home at night and and have dinner with her like all these things that people do Mm -hmm. um, I think I think this is part of how we help um, people connect to these ideas and and you know it's kind of like breadcrumbs here's a little bit and if you want to dig a little bit deeper um, so I, I really appreciate you doing this and this this is why we do podcasts like this I'm hoping that it's easier for someone driving to work to maybe listen to this um, how do we find you, and how do we get our mitts on this book? Well, the book is the, the easiest is probably Amazon.com, where it's available both Kindle and, and the paperback. But I mean, the, the Mises Institute offers it too, and it's much cheaper there. And you can download the PDF for free as well. Okay, great. Um, and you're on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. The handle is just my name, P E R B Y L U N D. How to think about the economy? A primer. Thank you. Thank this you. Is great. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.